please turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. Our sermon is titled, Light Against the Backdrop of Darkness. The actual ninth plague, an introduction to the tenth plague against Egypt in the 15th century B.C., so 3,500 years ago now, is what's going on in our text. It is noteworthy that there were ten plagues in chapters 7 through 11, and that there will be ten commandments given in chapter 20. Israel should take note. This is the one true God. God is seeking to restore knowledge of Himself that has been lost since the Garden of Eden. He is trying to restore knowledge of Himself for His own glory. He is the banner, described as the healer, described as holy. Scripture says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. And glory is the point. His glory is the point of the Bible. His glory is the point of the creation. He insists on sincere and conscientious reflection on Him. Worship. He punishes irreverent babble and irreverency toward His holy throne. When we look at the ninth plague at the end of chapter 10, we're going to hear about pitch darkness. The Egyptians couldn't even rise up out of their beds. It was so dark. Yet on the horizon, God's people, segregated and isolated in their little church enclave in Goshen, they had light. Pharaoh wanted to tell Moses that if I ever see you again, I'll kill you. And he did. He threatened Moses. And yet, Moses' people plundered the Egyptians and took precious metals, livestock, riches out of Egypt, just as God had predicted through his servant Moses. In fact, Moses was to be like God to Pharaoh. And so, when we read of God, or rather of Moses, being kicked out from Pharaoh's presence, it's as if Pharaoh is saying, God, I want you out of my presence. A dangerous thing indeed. The prediction of the death of every firstborn in Egypt would not hold for Israel because of the Passover, which we get into next week, Lord willing. Moses does go out from Pharaoh this time, turning the tables of the regent in charge, and he goes out in hot anger. And we have the Passover, which is the precursor to the execution of the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And that is a narration of our text in brief. Now, before we read our text, I want to give you the theme of the text. And I want to do it in a little bit of, a, of an unorthodox way. I want to look at the New Testament before we read our text today. And I'll explain why momentarily. Just after the resurrection, on the walk to Emmaus, Jesus explained Moses, the key figure in this text that we're preaching today, that we're talking about today. He explained Moses in all of Moses' writings, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus explained that after his resurrection in light of himself. It is simply want to cite, or quote rather, two quick texts from Luke 24 to make this point. First, Luke 24 44 to 48. And here's what it says. Then Jesus said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you. I'm looking at Luke 24, 44, if you're trying to put them up, not 24. It would be verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of whom? Of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the rest of the, New, of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise again from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then earlier in Luke 24... The text says, Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, and I want you to focus in on this word here, see. See is a crit. You're going to, a lot of stuff about seeing and then the sight of in our Exodus text today. They did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And what did Jesus do? Right out of the resurrection gate, what is he teaching for the church? Beginning with Moses, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Very simply put, Moses wrote scripture about Jesus. Moses wrote scripture about Jesus. And this is exciting. I mean, this is cool. <laughs> because now... These stories have a line of continuity. We only need to mine the, the Scriptures, to dig into them, like, like mining for precious metals, to figure out how Moses' Scripture is talking about Jesus. And today's text in particular lends itself to this, this mining expedition. I believe that as we lift Jesus high today... Like the Gospel of John says, that he will draw people unto himself. It sounds like an oddity to unsanctified ears, but that's Christ. When we talk about him, he draws people to himself. This exercise is not about me and you. Primarily, it's about him. And secondarily, and penultimately to his ultimate glory, is his making a relationship with us where unholiness on our part should have made no way. Should have been a non-starter. And God's made a way. So we want to restore any lack of knowledge about him today to the best of our ability. And we want to talk about God on God's own terms by looking at Scripture. And, and we want to see as we lift high the name of Jesus in every aspect of word ministry today, including the preaching of the word, we want to talk about him as the point of this word, trusting that he will draw you to himself. I'd be thrilled if you forgot that I'm the one talking. I wish you'd hear from God today by his word in three ways. And then we'll read the text of Exodus 10 and 11. First, Jesus is the light of the world. We're going to see that in chapter 10. Second, Christians are light in the world. We're going to see that also in chapter 10. And then thirdly, Christ is worth all the world. And we'll see that in chapter 11. So one, Jesus is the light of the world, Exodus 10, 21 to 23. 
Christians are light in the world, Exodus 10, 24 to 29. And thirdly, Christ is worth all the world, which is Exodus 11. One more note about the text before we read it. There is a part of of chapter 11 that is a continuation of the end of chapter 10, but it doesn't read like that. There's these flashback points in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 11 and verses 9 and 10 of chapter 11. So I'm going to read it straight through, but you almost need to, to follow the chronology of the episode, you almost need to jump from verse 29 of chapter 10 to verse 4 of chapter 11 so that you can finish the dialogue between angry Pharaoh and angry Moses. And we see these things that the Lord said as being have being said to Moses priorly, verses 1 to 3 and 9 to 10. You'll, you'll pick it up. Okay, so let's hear the word of the Lord now from Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 21 with the ninth plague of darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Let one plague more, yet one plague more, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go out from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they... That, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Verse 4, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind a handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. 
And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. Now first, Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12 says that explicitly. Jesus is the light of the world. We say it at our candlelight service at Christmas time. Jesus is the light of the world. We spread that message. But Jesus is the light of the world in creation, in decreation, and in recreation. But Jesus is the light of the world in creation. This is how the Bible starts. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God did what? He created He created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And what happened? God said something. He spoke and creation was. He said, let there be what? Light. The opposite of darkness. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day, in the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So what do we see in the opening passage in the Bible? Well, we see the Spirit and the Father there, and the Son was there at creation too, for in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is Christ. The spoken Word makes things happen, we see. So there is Creator that is God. One God, one Creator, not a pantheon of gods. The Exodus plagues remind us of the regularity of God's creation of light and the way the Lord must sustain light for us to see anything. So Jesus is the light of the world in creation. Jesus is the light of the world during the decreation that is exhibited in the plagues. And many scholars, better than me, have made this point, so I'll just read a bit. The plagues are like a reversal of creation. Michael Morales notes it like this. He says, All of God's signs and wonders fall within the context of creation theology. It is stunning how often Exodus portrays the hand of God stretched out over the waters, the earth, the cattle, toward heaven, a gesture of lordship over every realm and every aspect of creation turning the river, water into blood, smiting the region with frogs and flies, sending a pestilence among the livestock, causing boils to break out on the Egyptians, sending hail, swarms of locusts, impenetrable pre-creation darkness, and the death of the firstborn. All these acts demonstrate that their author is one who possesses absolute control of nature, one who possesses all authority, both in heaven and on earth. The signs displayed in Israel's exodus out of Egypt demonstrate that the Lord is the Lord over all creation." The world of Egypt comes undone or decreated, moving from order to disorder, as some say, from from cosmos to chaos, whereas the waters are separated in a new act of creation for the Israelites to walk dryshod across. End quote. Today is uh, 9-11, September 11th. You might remember 21 years ago where you were. I know that I do. And I simply want to say today that 9-11 is proof positive that people are religious. Secularism will never completely rule 
the hearts of man, because God hath put eternity in the hearts of man. It is not a debate on whether or not we will be religious. The debate is about which one. Pagan or proper? Hopeless or hopeful? We humans grope for answers to life's ultimate questions like the Israels would have groped for their bed rail in the midst of this darkness. And in the Bible, darkness is typically a metaphor for not walking with the Lord. It's a metaphor for walking in wickedness. And so we hopelessly grope for the truth, like the New Testament unison reading we did this morning. We are without excuse. The Creator it's Himself, and the creation itself testifies to who God is. We will stand before the Lord without excuse, lest we not know Him, lest we not trust Christ. And so Jesus is the light of the world in this decreation. At the expense of laboring the point, this is how Tim Chester said it. It's a very helpful, short little paragraph. Sometimes we're told the source of the plague, the frogs come out of the waters in chapter 8, the gnats and the dust out of the ground, and the hail and the, dar- uh, and the darkness from the sky in chapter 9 and 10. And in 1021, what we just read, the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hands toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. The idea is that God deploys all of creation, land, sea, sky, From the waters come frogs, from the grounds come gnats, from the air comes flies. All of creation is mobilized against Pharaoh. And by extension, all the enemies of God that were in Egypt. In the end, even light and life are extinguished as we move from frogs in the bed to bodies in the street. End quote, Tim Chester. Jesus is a light in creation, and he's still the light when decreation is the message that rebels need to see, feel. It was a darkness they could feel. Jesus is the light of the world in recreation. Now, that's spelled the same, but it's not recreation, like leisure, but recreation, like creating again. When we talk about the storyline of the Bible, we often describe it with four words, creation, fall, redemption, and the fourth word has some synonyms, but recreation would fit consummation, fulfillment, creation, fall, redemption, let's say recreation. When Christ returns, he will fix the sin that sent all of Adam's offspring east of Eden. Christ is the redemptory sacrifice for me and for you. He's the only redemptory sacrifice for me and for you. And we who put our trust in Jesus Christ find hope of being with him in the new creation, in the recreation. In fact, the Bible ends with Christ being described as the light in the new creation instead of the sunlight. There's no more need for the sun, Revelation 21 and 22 articulates, because Jesus is going to light up the whole place. And that's good. That's very good. In fact, it's even better, gooder than Genesis 1, where everything's very good. It's all very good in Genesis 1. But... In our fallen state, we face not only the look of creation and us as the image of God, though marred, but we face the prospect of rebellion in our sin and separation from God. Often we talk about, about heaven and hell, and, 
know, we talk about fire in hell, and we talk about, um, sometimes we, there's this sort of fiery red depiction of Lucifer and things like that. I suppose there is some biblical warrant for some of those thoughts. But really, the best definition of hell is the place where God is not. It's a place where God's glory is not reigning in a manner to provide salvation to the people. Hell is the place where God's rejected. It's a place where God's blessing is removed. It is purely Ichabod. It is gnawing anxiety. It's the worst of this world to the 10th power. It's all of that. But fundamentally, hell is the place where God's glory is not rightly appreciated. Insofar as the kingdom has come, insofar as we are the gathered out people of God, definitionally the church, isn't it our opportunity to appreciate the glory of God? And if He is holy, 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 then we should pursue holy, 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 shouldn't we? The earth is bouncing His glory back and forth. And we need to catch a wave of it. My youngest daughter once asked me, Daddy, are you afraid of the dark? I replied, no, not really. She said, I'm only afraid of the dark if it's thundering and I don't have my nightlight and no one's with me. Then, I want to tell you that they didn't have a nightlight and they could see no one with them. Their beds were like graves. It's not like Alaska or Norway, as boys pointed out. This is Egypt where the sun's always supposed to shine in the day. Except, of course, when God turns out the lights. You do believe the sun stood still one day, don't you? There's something about that darkness at the wrong time of the day that we may look at at the end of this sermon today. But we need to understand that no one was rising from their grave-like beds for three days. I guess we should probably say something about that, shouldn't we? Does that sound familiar? Three days. Did you notice that refrain? Three days. Three days. It's not hard to hear a type for another batch of three days in a dark grave, is it? A ninth plague of darkness lasts three days, and then after comes a Passover lamb. It's going to be slain, and the people are going to be released. Slain substitute. Egyptian firstborn dead. People of Israel liberated, culminated in the resurrection. Jim Hamilton said it like this. He said, the fullest expression of this is the crucifixion. Darkened three days, then resurrection, triumphal sacrifice. So this quiet plague in these three verses, compared to the others, still preach a powerful sermon, even if the text is brief, even if it seems quiet. It's like a blind man teaching you how to see, to quote the Gospel of John. Hear the word of the Lord in the ninth plague. On Egypt. Jesus is the light of the world through creation all the way to recreation. Second point Christians, we believers, Christians, are light in the world. That's just straight out of Matthew, isn't it? Where Jesus says, You are the light of the world. 
The longer form of it is in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but set it on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory, give glory, give glory, give glory, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your light is about the glory of God, not your own glory, not the glory of man. And as it's been said, the Egyptians might be able to look on the horizon and see glimpses of light over there where God's people are, but they don't have any of it. No wonder public opinion shifted away from Pharaoh, right? No wonder public opinion shifted away from belief in the sun god Ra and Pharaoh as his incarnate son. No wonder the, the, the little dog of death, Anubis, and that senseless false god, no wonder the people started to say, huh, I think Moses is a representative of the one true God. No wonder, right? It seems that Lots of people in Egypt are waking up to the program of God. And that's the point, really. Christians are to be light in the world today. And so we should not compromise our consciences in the tense times. We should not compromise our consciences in the tense times. Think about verse 24. If you look down at your Bible, you'll see it. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve your Lord. But it's a half concession, isn't it? He still thinks he's in the seat of power, of bargaining. It opens with Pharaoh calling Moses there in for the very last time, and, and is really the last time Moses will be any sort of subordinate to Pharaoh, any sort of vassal to Pharaoh. From here on out, Moses will be more of a king than unnamed Pharaoh. Philip Ryken said it like this. He said, what God did to Pharaoh was a direct response to what Pharaoh has done to him. If you think about Exodus 4, the oppression of God's firstborn son Israel. If you think of the babies that were drowned in the Nile, cruelly, little children drowned in the Nile, infanticide and partial birth abortion to try to further the aims of a tyrant who wanted to keep Israel under his thumb and try to keep them from the multiplication that proved unstoppable. Pharaoh had done, tried everything to keep his control. Then, give it up and trust Yahweh. He was without excuse. Pharaoh's losing his grip and he won't admit it. If you imagine holding something really heavy and holding it for as long as you can and your strength starts to give way but thinking you've still got a hold of it and thinking you've still got a hold of it and finally it slips through the grasp of your fingers. That's what's going on with Pharaoh's power. And after three days, the scene went to eerily silent and terrifyingly tense. Pharaoh offered Moses a deal, a bargain, or from eerily silent to terrifyingly intense. It was tense as it could be when he offers his bargain. It's the best deal he's offered yet. He's going to let all the children go this time with the men and the women. The only thing is they can't take their livestock. So it would be fundamentally affect their economy, and it would really affect their ability to fulfill the worship that God has called them to. It must have been a tempting deal at some level. You all go and leave the livestock behind. Surely that'll get them back. But you know what, Moses, as he's grown into this role, and he's approaching his finest hour, he hasn't always had fine hours, that's for sure. If you read Exodus on balance. Moses doesn't paint himself as the hero here, that's for sure. Paints himself as deliverer. But he's talking about Christ. The text knows that it is pointing toward a Messiah that would come. 
from Genesis 3 onward, Moses is self-consciously writing Scripture, and when he writes Scripture down about this great epic, he knows he's pointing to one greater than himself. Warts and all he's talked about. So when he describes himself as a man that was thought of as great in the eyes of the Egyptians in chapter 11, don't think of that as arrogance. He also describes himself as one that God's hot angry with when he won't just go do what God told him to do. Exodus is fair on balance. We've just come to a point where Moses is, well, he's coming into his own. God has got him to the place in his spiritual walk where he is able to discern more rightly and have the courage to follow through with God's agenda rather than his own. So he doesn't take this deal. He knows that they all have to go with all of their belongings. You also know that God has promised to make it so. So he doesn't take nine-tenths of the way there. He goes for 100% obedience in this pursuit of holiness. We should not compromise on key principles from God in Scripture. We should not, not, not just to get along in the world. Now, there are times, I understand, compromises and bargaining is important. But if it is a clear principle from the Word of God, particularly if it's something about our worship that's clear in Scripture, we don't want to add to or take away from what Scripture says about how we are to bring glory to God as a corporate people. The livestock were essential in that epic to worship. Moses did not have the liberty to make this bargain, and thankfully he did not make it. We should not compromise our consciences. Our consciences need to be informed by the Word of God, so teach your little children this Word. You know, re-up every week, teach the Lord, read the Bible in your home, bring them to Sunday school, let them hear the Bible taught, sing songs together about, that sing Scripture. You know, model what you do at home after what we do here. Just pillage what we do here. We give you full permission. Pillage a song and pillage a scripture reading and, and pillage a, a, a prayer of, of petition and pillage a prayer of confession and pillage an assurance of pardon. Pillage the whole thing. Take it home. Do it with your kids. Do it over and over again. Get the word in them. And kids, you be receptive to it. Listen to your parents. If you have parents that are trying to get the word to you, stop being all smug about it and just thank God you got parents that are trying to get the word to you. And grandparents, you can bridge the gap here. Read the word to your grandbabies. Tell them the scripture. Talk to them about it. Engage with them. Most of you won't get ran out on a rail for just simply reading the word of God and having prayer. Do it. It's important. We should not compromise our conscience, but that conscience must be informed by the word of God. The kids must know the scripture. We must too. We need to know it together. We have this word. I mean, it is amazing. You know, in the time of Moses, they didn't have all this. They had oral tradition and a wonderful prophet, and an opportunity to have the prospect of having Scripture written down, that teaching might happen. But this was passed along verbally. You have a great gift. And that's why we don't demand more signs and wonders. We say, God, what a wonder this is. And it's going to be a great wonder when you come in authority, rectify every wrong, establish your kingdom in total with your people forevermore. I mean... The ten plagues will seem sort of like small potatoes at that point, but they didn't then, and they wouldn't now. Just more to the point, Christians are light in the world, so we shouldn't compromise our conscience when times are tense. When times are tense, we should not compromise our consciences. I want you to look at chapter 11, verse 3. After that really tense time where Pharaoh has tried to tell Moses what he would and wouldn't let him do, Pharaoh's heart's hard. There is this disclaimer, this flashback, where there is a statement of fact that the Lord gave the people favor. And 
It's almost as if it's paralleling the face of Moses at the end of chapter 10, the lack of sight at the, at the beginning of the ninth plague, and the, then with the favor that they have with what Moses has and the people have with the Egyptians during the Exodus. So just listen to this verse about in the sight of. You may have heard me emphasize that, that repeat of this phrase when I was doing the first read-through earlier. But listen again, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. You know, just, just a, a quick word about this. Uh, when you have favor with people, I was taught this by a man of God probably eight or ten years ago, but it's really true, and I'm thankful that, that Bill taught me this. When you have favor with people, that is a favor that God has granted you. So thank God for it. I mean, even if you have the gifts to get the favor because you're, you're, you're clever or you're, you're, you're kind or compassionate, that's because God puts you in a position to have that. But if you get past all that, all that you, realize even if you're clever, kind, whatever, you wouldn't have favor with someone even with all that unless God gave it to you. So as a Christian, it is your responsibility to appreciate the favor you have with someone and to give glory to God in that relationship. To put it differently, uh, we are not utilitarian, meaning your value to me is your utility to me. What I can get from you determines your value to me. That's what philosopher John Stuart Mill was famous for talking about, utilitarianism. We are not functional utilitarians. Your utility to me should not determine your value to me because God has said that you're valuable. And because you're valuable to God, you're valuable to me and vice versa. So if you have favor with someone created in the image of God, understand that your favor in the sight of them has been granted to you by God. Maybe not as extravagantly as chapter 11, 3 of Exodus says in the Exodus. I mean, it was a big part of the storyline. They plundered the Egyptians. But still, in, in, in germ, that favor is God granted. And it seemed to be worth saying here as we look at the conclusion of this second point. Christians are light in the world, and so we must leverage that rightly, not in a manner that compromises conscience when the tough times come. And, and last thing about this second point, you, you can't wait till the tough times come to determine how you're going to respond to tough times. If you wait until the pressure's on, you're going to cave every time. You're going to take that bargain, you're going to take that deal. You have to determine where the edges are of acceptable compromises or bargains in the world to, quote, get along in the world before it gets there. Because if you wait until it gets there, you're going to whiff. Like, you're not going to be the man or the woman of the hour in that, in that moment. There, there's a third point in our sermon. I want to get right to it. It's Christ is worth all the world. Christ is worth all the world. You know, I can't think about this third point and the balance of Exodus 11 without jumping forward to the parable Jesus told of the pearl of great price. Are you familiar with that parable, the pearl of great price? If not, I'll just tell you a few verses in the New Testament about it. Uh, it's in Matthew 13. It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The, the thing that's being conveyed in those very, the very short teaching of Jesus, it's sandwiched amongst a bunch of other teachings too. But the, the principle is nothing is worth more than the kingdom of heaven. Nothing. And who is central 
in the kingdom of heaven? Christ. He's central. So nothing's worth more than Christ. As one said, to have Christ and have everything else is to have no more than to just have Christ. You should write that down and think about it. It's kind of deep. I mean, really. Like, don't you think that to have Christ and to have Posey County's property deeded to your name tomorrow is more than to have Christ? Answer? No. There's nothing more than Christ. He is everything. Get that in there, and let's get it in here. Everything is Christ. That's why we sing in a more positive note, hallelujah, all I have is, yeah, yeah. That's why Hertz is don't pull U-Hauls. All you have is Christ. There's no more. That's it. Everything. He's your everything. Very seldom should we speak in such absolutes, but when we talk about the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we speak in absolutes. Christ is worth all the world, or to put it differently, He's worth more than all the world. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. You know, nothing that you see is or will be without Christ. Trinitarian theology teaches us so much on this point. It's hard to wrap your mind around the eternality of Christ. But the Son existed in forever past and lives to advocate for His people now in co-eternality with God the Father and the Spirit. Nothing that you see wasn't created by God in eternity. And nothing that you will see in the new creation and the recreation will be there without God making it there. The preeminence of Christ is a worthy lesson to draw from the plagues and the exodus. In fact, my great prayer for you today is that you would have the eyes of your heart opened to see the great worth of Christ. Christ is worth everything. What are you pursuing that could possibly be worth more than Christ? In biblical terms, the answer is emphatically nothing. There's no pearl of greater value than this one pearl, Christ. The Lord had previously said things to Moses that are in 11, 1 to 3, and, and 9 and 10. Look at 11, 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague, this last plague I'll bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and then he's going to let you go completely. I'm not going to want you around anymore. In verse 2, and you're going to pillage your neighbors, and you're going to get recompense for what's been done to you, and you're going to take it out with you. And then verses 9 and 10, the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders, why will he not listen to you that my wonders might be multiplied in the land of Egypt? Moses and Aaron, his brother, his three years older brother, did all these things in their 80s, by the way, all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord did what? He hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. So we, we learn here that Christ is worth all the world in metals and commodities and relationships and more. I think just about those things. Think about metals, for one. In, in the haste of the Exodus, the time has come where God would provide gold for them. Now, they will misuse this gold 
to build a golden calf. You can read about that in Exodus 32. Lord willing, we'll eventually get there in this series of sermons. But we learn hard lessons too, as God's people do. Sometimes we tend to do the, thing, the favor that we have with people and the goods that we get because of God's provision for us. Sometimes we misuse it. Sometimes things are used for less than pure worship purposes, and we ought to take an inventory of our gold and our cows and make sure that our pocketbooks are not being used to make golden calves. We ought to take an inventory of the provision, if not the plunder, of this world that God has granted us in this economy and this time and give glory to God and figure out how to give glory to God with how we steward the resources that we have in this life. That probably involves support, involves support of your local church. It probably doesn't stop there. It probably involves right allocation with your family, not rewarding misbehavior with your children, leveraging your resources, your assets, your businesses to the next generation for gospel work, being concerned for the kingdom of Christ and not simply your own little fiefdom. These are probably some applications to say a few, but think of not just these, these metals, but think of the commodities like beef. These cows weren't exactly dinner necessarily, but they were beasts of burden. God would make sure that the livestock and the metals went with the people as they exited Egypt. And, you know, scholars say there's about 2 million people in the Exodus. Let's just stop and ponder that for a moment. 2 million people heading southbound on the train out of Egypt. So if there's no train, there's livestock and there's, there's gold and jewelry and I mean, these people have been slaves for 400 years. Can you imagine? You know, they take that slave mentality right out with them, and they, there's all kinds of trouble, but, but God sees them through it, even if it involves some punishment too. He provides for them through relationships. You know, the Bible says that as Israel goes, taking tons of goods with them, the Bible says in chapter 12 that some Egyptians went with them, a point I've made many times from this pulpit during this series so far, so I won't labor that, but the plagues have an evangelistic aspect to them. People are one to the knowledge of the glory of God through the judgment of the punishments. But, but the salvation for the people and the judgment against not God's people, it's always secondary to God's glory. It's always about God's glory. When we make the liberation of the people or the punishment of the plagues the point of Exodus, we miss the fact that it's the reason the plagues were prolonged to begin with is it's all about God's glory. I mean, if, if all God was seeking to do was liberate Israel, he could have done it a lot quicker. You need to think about that. There's an application for your own suffering in this life. If all God's concerned with is liberating you from this sin-stricken world, He could, he could make it happen a lot sooner. I mean, it could just be done. If all God's concerned with is bringing judgment on the Hitlers of the world, the wicked people of the world, and, and just the rank-and-file rebels of the one true God in the world, anybody that's a thorn in your side, He could have done it. This is why we must be careful in how we interpret Exodus, that we don't think it's simply about us, and the whole Bible for that matter. It's also why we, we, we really must be careful when we're talking about what God has done for us, that we do it in a manner that is, is worshipful toward God, is humble, and is not dismissive of those that aren't as far along the way as us. Uh, Christopher Ashe and someone else wrote a book about the heart of anger. I haven't read it yet, but it looks really interesting. I read a review on it, but it's, it looks really, really interesting to me. And this is, this is what he says about it. I want to read it to you. I think it's fascinating. i got to say this, too, before I read it to you. The, uh, 
The reason I'm bringing this up in this third point is because Moses leaves Pharaoh in what? Do you see it? I believe it's in verse 7. He leaves Pharaoh in, does it say hot anger, I think? Hot anger? Yeah, i got to find it first. It's in here somewhere. But he says, well, maybe it's not. You might not get to hear it after all. I've got too many pages up here. Is it 8? It's in 8, I think. But here's what Christopher Ashe, if I can find it, says about anger. It's so important to us, I think. I, sometimes I see too many angry people. There it is. Anger is usually unrighteous. Seldom in the Bible is anger described as righteous. And here's what he writes. See Jesus' example of godly humility and seek to imitate it. For Jesus knew his place. He came in submission to his Father, speaking only his words, seeking only his honor. Now listen to this last part. It was never personal. It was never a personal affront that made Jesus angry. His anger was roused by the unjust treatment of the weak, so injustice, and the dishonoring of his father, false worship, or the pantheon, or uh, irreverent babble, or whatever the case may be, Korah's rebellion. It was never personal affront that made Jesus angry. His anger was roused by injustice or dishonoring the father. Righteous anger is not about a personal affront to you. Any more than favor you have with people is about, oh, look at me. I must have got it right now. You know, I've arrived. Slipping through your hands like control slipping out of Pharaoh's hands. I mean, that's just nothing. All you have is Christ. Christ is worth all the world. Because Christ is worth more than all the world. So check your anger this morning. I know it seems like an odd subpoint in this, this text that we're going through, but I don't think it's completely random because, and I'll find the exact verse here, it says in chapter eight, verse, chapter 11, verse 8, the very end of it, Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. I don't think there's a check that this anger is bad. I think it is a, a realization that everything Pharaoh could offer in the world, and he could offer a lot. I mean, this was the zenith of Egyptian power as Pastor Kurt pointed out a few weeks or a week ago. It's the zenith of Egyptian power when we think the Exodus took place. And they don't write about it because they don't want to write about it. But if you believe in the one true God and the plagues and the Exodus, and, and you believe that Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart too for something more than just delaying this Exodus, if you think there was purpose to the 400 years of suffering, just like there's purpose to the suffering in your Christian life until you meet the Lord, if you believe all that, then there is a rare time for righteous anger, for white-hot anger to be expressed by humans. But it's not when you've personally been affronted. Jesus models it's about injustice and it's about malignment of God. That's when we should start to have our blood rise a little bit, blood pressure rise a little bit, if, if Ash got it right. And I think he's probably looked at the biblical data pretty carefully on that subject. So we thought about the metals and commodities like livestock, and we, we thought about relationship. We need to think about a little bit more before we call it quits today. And that little bit more is... The way that God used Moses' fame for a purpose in pulling the people out. He exemplified that the Lord was worth more than the world and how this goes. It says in verse 3, And the Lord gave people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of the people. So the elevation of this person was not about expressive individualism. The elevation of this person was about a beat-up 80-year-old helping the people get across the finish line of the exodus so this is not about pride and it's it's not about i'm going to flex my muscles and be angry this is approaching moses's finest hour and he's growing into the role 
And I think there's something here for us as we think about our identification with Moses and his identification with Abraham. It's an interesting study in theology to read through the first book of the Bible in Genesis and see the way the experience of Abraham and his exodus from Egypt parallels Moses and their exodus from Egypt. It's an interesting study because really it's our story. It parallels our story all the way through to the cross and beyond. It parallels our story of liberation. It parallels our story of God's glory being supreme even though we've been liberated as a secondary purpose of God in the world. His glory is first. Our liberation would be next. So we can get things right because of understanding Abraham growing into the role and Moses growing into the role. This isn't about Moses. It is about the Messiah. And I really wanted to point that out because God's glory is more important than your personal freedom. God's glory is more important than your plunder. God's glory is more important than your punishment of bad actors in the world. Life is always to be about you knowing the Lord is God and getting with that program. In my daily Bible reading, to put it differently, I've been tracking with the McShane plan, and we're in Ezekiel right now. And it's been more than one time, I think three or four anyway, where at the end of Ezekiel, something like Ezekiel, at the end of each chapter in Ezekiel, something like Ezekiel 13, 23 has said, it's this refrain, and you shall know that I am the Lord, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I mean, all the good things and certainly lots of bad things that's happening ends with this refrain in Ezekiel's chapters. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And I think that's really the point. Like, it's about the Lord. And the Lord having made himself known. I want you to think about Hebrews eleven twenty seven, written in retrospect of the experience of Moses. Hebrews, a much, much later book in the Bible, looks back on the faith to see the face of God at work in the midst of worrying about the faces of pharaohs. And the author of Hebrew looks back to commend the living faith of Moses in these finer hours. And he writes, By faith, Moses, he, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, that is Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured, think, think about it, you might want to write that down. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. He endured as seeing him as invisible. So let's just break this down because this is a New Testament author's in light of Christ as the the ultimate substitute sacrifice, the whole Levitical system completed in Christ. In light of all that, he writes this about Moses in the Hall of Faith chapter, reviewing biblical theology, looking back at the Old Testament, and he writes this, and let's just kind of break it down. Beloved, there's a mouthful of truth in this one verse. God wants the world to know that he is the Lord. Christ is worth more than all of the world. How? You know that? By faith, those first two words. What does that faith look like? It looks like not being afraid, those next words. Not being afraid of what? The anger of powerful people who can threaten your very life, like Pharaoh. How do you maintain not being afraid? How do you endure in your faith? Well, faith is looking to him who is invisible. How can this invisible God be made visible to us? By him who knew no sin but became sin for us. That is the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the point of the Bible and the point of our passage today. Listen, non-Christians, you need messengers of God's word to help you see Christ. Preaching is a privilege that will one day leave you. At the very least, continue to invite these messages into your life like you have today. Don't cut true Christians out of your life as Pharaoh cut Moses out of his life. I don't want to see you again. If you have felt spiritually in the dark, you do not have to grope your way through life any longer. 
You don't have to recapitulate the ninth plague of darkness any longer. Follow the Lord, not the world. You'll find peace. Receive the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Receive him as your sacrifice. You don't have to have every little piece of theology figured out. You just need to know Christ and him crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected so that you can have hope of resurrection until you just need to trust Christ this morning. Non-Christian, I call you to him. And at the very least, I call you to keep listening. Don't push it away. But come to him today. Today is the day of salvation. And Christian, for you, keep the faith. Fear not. Endure to the end. Spread God's glory. Look always to him who is invisible, but really is now visible by faith. That one true face, as 2 Corinthians 3 expands upon it. Christ, he's worth all the world in metals, commodities, relationships, and more. Tim Chester wrote this about our text today, and it is really a wonderful way to end the sermon, so I'm just going to read it to you straightforward. I told you we might look forward to an odd time for darkness later, so I'm just going to say it now. That kid ain't going to bother me, I promise you. We're fine. We love babies. They cry. We don't care. It's good. Listen to what Tim Chester said, though, and zero in on Matthew 27, 45. He's going to quote the darkness of the cross in that crucifixion text. Here's what he says. There is a reason why we are allowed to see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There's a reason why we see people refusing to turn to Christ. Paul says in Romans 9.23 that it's that we might see in utter clarity the riches of God's glory to us on whom he has shown mercy. I cannot claim to be a Christian because of my desire or my effort. It's all because of God's mercy from the beginning to the end. And what mercy it is. The ninth plague was not the last darkness that came as a sign and means of judgment, he wrote. Another day dawned and then darkened unnaturally as a man hung dying on a cross while, it says in Matthew 27, 45, from noon until 3 p.m. in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. A very unnatural time for darkness indeed. The three days of darkness over Egypt was mirrored by the three hours of darkness over Jesus followed by death. At the cross, the plagues fell on Jesus, the Son of God. At the cross, the Maker came to be unmade so we can be remade. The Son was unraveled under the judgment of the Father. He experienced chaos, darkness, and death. As Jesus dies, the rocks split and the earth shook. It was the ultimate moment of decreation. Yet as the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, in that moment, recreation erupted as the dead came back to life. It was an anticipation of the recreation of Jesus at his resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus is the promise and beginning of all recreation. It's the promise of our recreation. And he concludes, as do I, the only place of safety in Egypt was Goshen, the home of the Israelites, where the darkness fell. Still, all the Israelites had light. Had, when the darkness fell, still all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Exodus ten twenty three. And the only safe place in the coming judgment will be in Christ, the true home of God's people. For Christ has already absorbed the plagues of God's judgment. Let us be silent before the Lord and then pray.